you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series, one episode at a time. However, in this bonus episode series, I am reviewing the 2019 Twilight Zone reboot, produced by Jordan Peele and Simon Kinberg, among others, and hosted by Jordan Peele. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the show, I'll be discussing A Traveler. It's the fourth episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it premiered on CBS All Access on April 18th, 2019. And before I get into the actual review and everything, I do have some pre-review notes from uh, past episodes in this bonus episode series, so bear with me. I got some good feedback on my review of Replay, which was the previous episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, Victor Gamboa of the Outer Limits podcast uh, reached out to me and said, Killer episode, man. You spotted a few Easter eggs I missed, which was fun to go back and check out. Also, I really enjoyed your take, especially given your family dynamic. Keep them coming. And then he put uh, hashtag no sleep for Matt, hashtag where's pizza's badge, and hashtag turn that thing off right meow, um, which uh, I responded with a really ridiculous picture um, that I had taken a long time ago when I got my cat pizza. Um, I took a picture of her and I put um, clip art that just made her into like a little police officer uh, cat. I'll against my better judgment i'll put uh i'll put the picture in the show notes of the episode it's it's ridiculous and stupid but anyway um <laughs> uh more feedback i got from a good friend of the show robert the friend of all the podcasts really uh robert in utah he dm'd me and said hey dude just listening to your review of replay and part of the episode he went on to explain that part of the episode really hit home with him um, i'm not going to go into detail because i kind of personal, but um, thank you so much, Robert, for reaching out and for being such a good friend of, of the podcast and everything. So, yeah. So, uh, that's the feedback I have. Um, I do have some notes about past episodes. So, first up, uh, some notes about replay um, that I didn't cover in my review. First of all, it's technically, I don't want to say it's a remake of a 20, uh, 2002 episode of The Twilight Zone, but it is... Um, heavily influenced by an episode of the 2002 Twilight Zone called Rewind, in which Eddie K. Thomas plays a compulsive gambler who gets a tape recorder that lets him rewind time five minutes. Um, I watched the episode. It's okay. Um, I think it's available on YouTube. I watched it through other means. But it's... It's okay. Um, <laughs> the 2002 Twilight Zone is really not that good from what I've seen. Um, and this that episode's solid. Um enough, I guess. I don't know. It was 
kind of forgettable. Um, the brand name of the camcorder and replay is Whipple. Um, I did not catch that in any of my viewings of the episode, um, but it is there on the camcorder in a few shots. Of course, Whipple is a reference to the original series episode, uh, The Brain Center at Whipple's, which I talked about in my review of Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. And another piece of trivia about the camcorder and replay is that it has inscribed on it uh, the words, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this, uh, the words, de la proprietaire, um, which means tend to an owner on its side. Uh, the same thing was on the camera in season two, uh, in the season two of the original series episode, A Most Unusual Camera, which just for, just for fun, I went and re, rewatched that episode. It's one of the sillier episodes of the original series. Um, especially the actor that plays the, uh, the brother that's in the episode. He's such a, he, he plays the character as such a, like, not, I don't want to say dim-witted, but just this, well, yeah, dim-witted kind of character. It's just, it's really goofy and kind of fun to watch. Um, also in replay uh, during Jordan Peele's narration, the headline of the newspaper that he's reading in the diner in that opening opening narration scene is a reference to the original series season one episode. I shot an arrow into the air. Um, the headline says something to the effect of uh, experimental rocket crash lands in Reno desert or something. Um, and then finally uh, I got some feedback um about replay about my questioning the Earliesville sign um, in the episode from uh, Twitter user Fu Mike Chu. He said regarding the Earliesville sign in the episode, it also said Emmett Avenue, possibly a reference to Emmett Till, which of course Emmett Till was um, a young African American in the fifties who was brutally uh, murdered, um, lynched, and uh, was kind of a, a that that crime was a huge, huge moment in the civil rights movement and kind of kicked, kicked off a lot of things and was also something that, uh, that Rod Serling was incredibly interested in. And he actually wrote an episode of, I think it was the U S steel hour. Um, that was about that particular crime. I think it was called noon on doomsday, but the censors and, and, Apparently the censors were kind of heavily on that or heavy on that. And, uh, what ended up being shown on us steel hour was a pretty far cry from what he actually wrote in the script. Um, and I don't know particularly if this is the case, but it feels like just reading the Emmett Till Wikipedia page. Um, it feels like, uh, Rod Serling's script for a town has turned to dust. Um, has a lot of references to, to that particular, situation and, and crime. Um, but thank you Fu Mike, Fu Mike Chu for, uh, bringing that to my attention. Also, um, it's worth mentioning that the Earliesville sign, Earliesville is actually a city, um, about nine miles away from Charlottesville, uh, which of course Charlottesville had the, the, uh, unite the right thing, white supremacy thing, um, a couple years ago. So that could be what the reference was for Earliesville. Um, some other, uh, past episode notes. Uh, these are just for, uh, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. Um, first up, do- uh, something that I missed was Justin's doctor's name that's referenced in the phone call with his wife is actually a reference to the actor who portrayed the gremlin in the original Nightmare at 20,000 Feet episode. Um, another thing is that I was listening to 
fellow uh, Twilight Zone podcast uh, podcaster Craig Beam on his his show Between Light and Shadow, uh, he pointed out that the paratrooper bracelet Easter egg that uh, that Jordan Peele is wearing in the closing narration as he's picking up the MP3 player, he he brought that up obviously, and he mentioned that it kind of rubbed him the wrong way since Jordan Peele himself has not been in any military service or anything, any branch of the military. So he thought that it was a little, uh, in poor taste to have him actually wearing the bracelet. Um, since obviously Rod Serling was a paratrooper and that's the reason why he wore the bracelet, um, for, for most of his life after his, uh, service. Um, and uh, you know, it's kind of, I didn't really register that as a problem when I first saw it, but now that I'm kind of reflecting on it, I can definitely see where he's coming from. And I kind of, I'm, I kind of agree. Like it is, it is just a little bit, um, I don't know if in poor taste is the right word, but it's definitely something that kind of, I could see why it would rub people the wrong way. And I, like I have, um, both my parents were in the Marines and, um, I kind of, I kind of, I get that. I get that, um, I get that feeling of feeling like it's in poor taste to have, um, him wear it in the show. Uh, last thing about the past episodes is that in Nightmare 30,000 Feet, there are a couple of X-Files references that I didn't catch because I honestly have not watched the X-Files since I was a kid. Um, first up is that the body scanner readout in that opening scene uh is reminiscent of something in the opening credits i believe of the x-files tv show and also in when the uh security agent stops justin um in that opening scene again with the gloved hand and the gloved hand is just really right center frame in the in the in the frame of the shot uh that is a reference to something in the mythology of the x-files um so yeah, so a couple things I missed there. Obviously, Glenn Morgan was a producer and writer for the X-Files, and um, that's likely why they put in those references. Um, also, one of the actors, the actor that played the pilot in Nightmare 30,000 Feet was a recurring actor in um, the, the X-Files as well. Um, that does it for my notes and everything before the review. Um, I do think I'm going to watch the X-Files, by the way. Um, it's available on... Amazon Prime right now, so I might go ahead and watch that because I kind of need something to watch uh, that's not something that I need to cover on a podcast because I'm going a little bit insane <laughs> uh, because I'm supposed to watch stuff recreationally, but everything's for, for work. But anyway, um, it's all for you guys. I forgot to mention, by the way, in my last episode that I got a nosebleed right before I recorded, so I'm literally bleeding for you guys, so I hope you guys appreciate that. Um, so going into my review for A Traveler, uh, plot summary, courtesy of CBS All Access, is a mysterious man shows up in a jail one night, and no one knows how he got there, so it's up to one police officer officer to find out. Now, of course, I'm going to be spoiling the entire episode of A Traveler. And so if you haven't watched it on CBS All Access, please go watch it, come back and listen to the review. Um, I'm going to be spoiling it from the jump, so there's not going to be any spoiler warning or anything. So this is your spoiler warning. <laughs> um, cast and crew rundown for A Traveler is this episode stars Steven Yoon as a traveler. Uh, he is most known for playing Glenn on The Walking Dead for several, several, several seasons. He was also in one episode of Weird City on YouTube that was produced by Simon Kim Kimber, or, uh, uh, Wynn Rose Rosenfield and 
Jordan Peele um, that I referenced last episode. I, I haven't watched any more, but I, I'm still kind of mulling over whether or not I want to do like a little quick bonus review episode of the season. But anyway, uh, Stephen Yoon also had a very big year last year. He was in Sorry to Bother You. He did a fantastic job in that movie. And he was also in the highly acclaimed movie Burning, which I still haven't seen yet, but apparently he gives a remarkable performance in it from what I've heard. Co-starring in this episode is Marika Sila. Uh, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She plays Sergeant Yuka Mangoyak. And her only other acting credits are an episode of Lucifer in which she played what sounds like a bit part. Um, she just played Barfing Girl. And a short film from 2018 called Nisawak. Um, other than that, there's really not much else that she's been in, according to IMDb. And rounding out the cast and crew, or cast, is uh, Greg Kinnear as Captain Lane Pendleton. He was in Little Miss Sunshine, uh, the last and the final season of House of Cards. He was also in this indie drama that was, uh, that closed out the indie film fest here in Indianapolis a few years ago called uh, Little Men, which I think is available on Amazon Prime or Netflix right now. Um, pretty good movie. It's, 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 it's a good movie. I reviewed it on Obsessive Viewer. And then also, uh, it's worth mentioning that Greg Kinnear recently, in the past couple years, re- appeared in an episode of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams on Amazon Prime, uh, episode titled The Father Thing. Um, I haven't gotten to that episode yet, but after I finish my review series on, uh, The Twilight Zone, I'm going to go into my review series for Electric Dreams, provided that, uh, Netflix doesn't surprise drop, uh, um, Black Mirror, uh, beforehand. So, yeah, I'll be talking about that later in the year. Oh, yeah, and, uh, rounding out the cast for real this time is, uh, Patrick Gallagher, who, uh, plays Jack. He is known for playing Attila the Hun in the Night at the Museum movies. He also did some voice work on Red Dead Redemption 2. He was also in Captain Marvel and A Dog's Way Home. And writer for this episode is Glenn Morgan, who was, of course, as I mentioned before, producer and writer for The X-Files. And he also worked on 21 Jump Street and The Commish uh, back in the day. And director for this episode is uh, Anna Lily Amirpour. Um, she directed, uh, a girl walks home alone at night a few years ago. I haven't seen that movie, but I've, it's been on my radar for a long time. So apparently it's really good as a horror movie, but she also directed the episode past perfect of, uh, castle rock season one, uh, in that episode. That's one of my, that's one, one of the stronger episodes of that season of castle rock. You can check out my review of that on, uh, tower junkies. Okay. So my initial thoughts on a traveler from my first viewing, uh, my kind of immediate reaction was that, honestly, I was a little let down. Um, I didn't really connect with the episode the way that I have in the past episodes, um, in that first viewing, uh, in my first viewing of them. Um, I thought that it looked great. The cinematography was fantastic. Uh, Steven Yoon was the best part of the episode for me, but I wasn't very engaged, w- engaged with the plot, and I felt like it ended too abruptly, and I didn't really get what the point of the episode was aside from just being a sci-fi thriller um, story. But I did appreciate the sci-fi thriller mystery aspect of it. And it kind of harkened back to some, um, it made me, it made me, it it was felt reminiscent of like a Stephen King style of storytelling. And uh, I did also have some thoughts on the foul language, which I will talk about in my review. But basically I kind of, overall thought in my initial viewing before I went and kind of put it 
uh, kind of picked it apart in my review prep viewings was that I was just a tad underwhelmed. I didn't hate the episode, but I just kind of came away from it thinking that they can't all be winners. Okay, so to go into my full review of the episode, um, right off the bat, I just, I really commend this series for its minority representation and the kind of balls that it has to tell stories where minority experiences are at the forefront. In this episode, it's about, um, Sergeant Yuka, uh, Mongoyak being an Inuit, um, woman in, um, Alaska. And she's a trooper who is basically has this identity crisis, uh, kind of brought out by her brother, Jack, that she is this, uh, person who is in his estimation, a person who has been, um, assimilated into kind of the white culture who has the white culture that has kind of subjugated their their ancestors and their people and their their way of life their culture and everything and kind of um from jack's experience she has appropriated this culture that is um and antagonistic to their way of life and their ancestry and, and their land um so it's just a really interesting dynamic to present for this episode um and just i, I was i was kind of uh, engaged with that. Um, however, I will say the, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, the recurring bit about Jack wanting pie throughout the entire episode did not work for me at all. I thought that was just, it just, it bothered me so much throughout the episode. I'll get to that later. But anyway, um, the Alaskan town in this episode, uh, the Alaskan town that it takes place in is called Iglak, Alaska. And that's actually the Inuit word for traveler or stranger or visitor. And credit for that piece of trivia goes to, uh, on Twitter, uh, Dinah Moxie. Um, and a thank you to Victor Gamboa from the Outer Limits podcast, uh, for pointing that tweet out to me. So that was an interesting kind of Easter egg there. So, uh, we open the episode with, with, uh, Yuka taking her brother Jack into the station in, like, into custody so that, uh, Greg Kinnear's Captain Pendleton can pardon him as this tradition that he has going, um, in the, in the station every year. He pardons a, he pardons a person that they are holding in the cells, uh, the, on Christmas Eve. And Greg Kinnear plays Captain, uh, Pendleton, like, like he plays this self-righteous small town buffoon of a captain really well. And he's just such a jackass, but he's in this position of authority and leadership that makes it so you don't, you don't necessarily hate him per se, um, for the most part, but you sure, like, you definitely don't have any respect for him. And that's an interesting line for him to kind of straddle in the episode. He's just this, he's a self-aggrandizing, just easily manipulated character, and he plays it so well. He's just, he's really good in this episode. And, um, yeah, so anyway, we'll talk more about his performance as, as I go on in this review, but I did want to point out that when Yuka and Jack enter the station, the camera focuses on the small toy alien, and I was wondering if that was a reference to something. I couldn't pick up anything. I, I didn't, it didn't, I didn't, it didn't register with me as anything that was from like the original series, but I'm sure it's probably just a, just an Easter egg just saying like, oh, hey, there's, this episode's about aliens and stuff, so that's probably what it is. Um, so I want to point out the music that plays throughout the episode, especially when they're walking down the corridor toward the, toward the cells. 
Um, it's really great at setting the mood for this mystery laden story. Um, there's this, there's this energy to it that just has you just really wondering like what's going on. And it kind of recurs throughout the episode. Um, and kind of reaches a, a crescendo at the end of the episode. And it's just, it's beautiful. Like, I love that, that music. I really hope that there's like a soundtrack release. Cause like that, I, I love that piece of music in this episode. And also in the comedian, the music that plays, uh, at the end when, uh, during Peel's closing narration of that episode, I just, I just love the music in this, uh, in this series so far. Um, another Easter egg that I noticed was that when they're going into the cells, they have the keypad and the, the code to get into the cells is 1015, which is obviously a recurring, um, Easter egg throughout the season, apparently. Um, I don't know if there's any references to 1015 in the comedian because it kind of starts out with, uh, Nightmare at 30,000 feet. So when I watched the comedian, I didn't really, wasn't looking for 1015, but I'm curious to go back and watch the comedian and see if there's any 1015s that I missed. Um, so this whole idea of the captain pardoning someone every Christmas Eve is the most self-righteous ego driven thing. And it's just, it's so, it's so annoying, frankly. It's just like the way that, the way that Greg Kinnear plays, uh, Pendleton as he's, as he's giving his speech and everything is just so irritating and just gets under your skin. And in this situation, like they have this, uh, this trooper has picked up her brother, her drunk brother, um, and brought him into the station specifically so that they can pardon him. Um, and in that case, it's kind of messed up to actually have him in the cell. Um, I mean, granted, he's drunk and, you know, later on, he's just passed out and everything. Um, it just seems like it seems just kind of messed up to actually have him in the cell when you're just, ha- you just have him there specifically to pardon him. So after we put him in the cell, uh, we get a close-up shot of um, a wrapped present on a desk that has the uh, image of the dummy from. I think. Oh, it's. I don't. I don't know if it's Living Doll. Is it Living Doll? I don't know. I, I haven't gotten to the episode in the original series, but the dummy from the ventriloquist, the ventriloquist dummy um, image is on there. And, uh, on the wrapping paper. And I also want to point out that the lamps next to that present are shaped like flying saucers. And I thought that was a pretty cool, like, visual, uh, foreshadowing. So, oh, I forgot to mention when they were outside, when, uh, Jack and Yuka were outside, there's this really great shot. Like, I love all the exterior shots of this episode because they're just, they look gorgeous. Um, especially with, like, seeing the, um, the northern lights, the way that they, they have them in the episode is really great. Um, but when Yuka and Jack are outside, they notice like this very bright, uh, star like thing in the sky and we see like they talk about it and, uh, and then they go into the, go into the station and as they're going into the station, we see the, the light kind of flash over. Um, so it's clearly, uh, the traveler's spaceship. So Pendleton, uh, to go back to Pendleton giving his speech about pardoning, pardoning people, it's, uh, it's just so, again, it's so sanctimonious. And he has this, he has this kind of shit-eating grin on his face that Kinnear uses to really great effect. Um, and he has this kind of like, he has this almost, I don't want to say southern drawl, but he has this like, he has a certain like drawl to his voice that seems like, 
it's whenever whenever he gives like this he he goes into like this self-righteous mode and everything he's just like he's so self-aggrandizing and he's so he it has this tinge of self-importance that just shows just how much of a moron he he is um it's it's entertaining and frustrating as well and during his speech this was the uh pretty big moment in the episode he had it showcases his total lack of self-awareness um when he references that his ancestors tamed alaska to make it the great 49th state and how before that it was just bears and eskimos um that like that insensitivity is so infuriating, and I love how the camera just stays on Yuka for that moment, um, because Yuka is this outsider. She's trying to uh, fit in with a regime that has subjugated her people and kind of erased her heritage from the land that they were indigenous to, and like that is enough to really make you um, connect with Yuka's Yuka as a character, but at the same time. Pendleton is putting on such a show about being nice to strangers and it's just, he's just such a jackass and it's just so infuriating when you couple that with the insensitivity of him being, uh, just completely not like totally lacking any self-awareness to realize that, um, what he's saying is insensitive and, and, uh, crappy. So, uh, he asks Yuka to go get Jack from the cell, and there's this slight, like, horror element to discovering the Traveler in the cell. Like, she goes down and she just sees him just sitting, sitting up straight when he, in his suit with that, with a hat and everything, and like, it's like a very horror moment. Um, it kind of, on a personal level, and this is ridiculous, but it takes, it kind of takes me back to my days as a night shift security guard. Um, I was a security guard for like 10 years and I worked night shift for like seven or eight years of that 10 year run. And like, it's just something, there's something just, there's, I don't know. There's, there's nothing quite as scary as seeing someone in a dark space when you think you're alone. And I think that like that resonated with me in this episode because that's kind of what happens to Yuka with the Traveler. And I love Stephen Yun's performance throughout this entire episode. He's he's incredible. Um, and the Traveler's first line is just so great. He just says, "I want to be pardoned," with his hat off and this gleeful, like charming sm- smile. And just the way that he says it is just so again charming, and it's just chilling at the same time. And Stephen Yun does. Such a great job straddling that line in this episode. And so his full line is, I want to be pardoned just like you will want to be pardoned. And then we get the opening narration. And I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to actually play a clip of the opening narration um, here in this episode. So here is Jordan Peele's opening narration for A Traveler. Meet Sergeant Yuka Mongayak, a woman with a knack for detecting the most subtle of mistruths. On this night... A night of the most powerful of myths. That skill will be tested like never before. She's about to learn that the truth can take many different forms depending on how you look at it. Because tonight, Sergeant Yuka's vantage point is at the very heart of the Twilight Zone. So, uh, okay. So about the opening narration. We're four episodes into this series, and I'm kind of... I don't know. I'm starting to want a little more out of the actual, like, the writing of the opening narrations. Like, Jordan Peele has this look, demeanor, and this cadence when he says the opening narrations that 
is really well done and, and like it's on point. Like I love his opening narrations, but and and really this is such a this is such a minor thing. It just seems like every narration has been completely focused on the character. Like the opening narration for the comedian was Samir Wasan is an artist of great principle. And then uh, for Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, it was on board a transatlantic flight is Justin Sanderson. And then for replay, it was presenting Nina Harrison. And now we have Meet Sergeant Yuka Mongoyak. Um, it's just everyone has been, it's just been introducing the character. And like, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like there's a pattern emerging or like a formula that they're going with, with, with this that doesn't really meet my, I guess, expectations for the narrations throughout the twilight zone. Like go back, like in, and this is, uh, it's, it's patently unfair to compare it to the original series because Rod Serling had such a gift for writing these just, beautiful, like poetic and, uh, gorgeously worded narrations that just gets to the heart of what, um, what the episode is about and what the story is about. And I feel like, I don't know, I kind of feel like while these opening narrations in this new series are conveying that pretty, conveying the point at least well enough, I feel like there's, there's, uh, there's a little bit of, um, poetry that's kind of missing from it. Uh, Just a little bit. Um, I don't know. I just kind of, I kind of hope that we get more, uh, variety in the opening narrations as we go forward with the rest of the season. I do like that he's just sitting like next to, um, uh, I don't know, like a radiator or something, like a coal, like whatever. Um, and he's holding a present. I just, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, so coming back from the intro, we get a shot of the Christmas party from the window in the door to the corridor into the station, if that makes sense. So basically we're inside the hallway toward the cells and we're looking out through the circular window in the doorway out into the party. And I really like the, um, first of all, I I really like the way that the episode title fits so perfectly within the, within the circular window. Um, I just, I just found that really oddly satisfying, but on a deeper level, I like the perspective that we're giving, given with this uh, shot. It's a really good visual nod to the themes of outsiders looking in that we're going to be exploring throughout the rest of the episode. So, uh, Pendleton goes into the cells to check on Yuka and to get Jack. Um, and at this point, like in my notes, I just have Pendleton is so dumb. Um, he's just, he's, he's a moron. Um, when he's in the hallway with the cells, he doesn't react at all to seeing one of his officers with an unholstered weapon in a defensive stance pointed at the cells. And that communicates two things to me. One is that he's just a complete idiot. And two, he's not at all equipped to be in law enforcement. And maybe that's due to his character being, uh, uh spending 20 years as the captain, of, captain of the small town, uh, trooper lodge or station or what have you. Um, it, maybe that made him lose whatever edge he may have had when he was, you know, just going into law enforcement. But I thought that that was really interesting that he doesn't even, he barely even registers the threatening, uh, the threatening nature of the situation when his, when one of his troopers has an unholstered gun. And maybe that goes so, I don't know, maybe, and this could be completely me reaching and everything. Maybe that's, 
maybe that part of that is due to, or maybe there's a subtext to that, that he doesn't take Yuka seriously, or maybe because she is, she is in you in Inuit and not like him. He just doesn't take her seriously. I don't, maybe that could be a complete stretch. I, I don't know. But anyway, so we get, Pendleton's first scene with with the traveler, and I love. Again, I'm going to be heaping praise upon Stephen Yun's performance in this episode, and it's also just worth mentioning that I I like uh, when CBS All Access and the Twilight Zone official uh, social media pages they post every episode. They post like little interstitial like videos of of actors talking about the episodes each week, and I love these things. And I think that they're all available in the CBS All Access app as well. But Stephen Yun's uh, segment that they did just posted today here on Sunday, Easter Sunday. I'm going to try to get this posted tonight. So happy Easter if you celebrate, but um, and happy Passover and everything if you celebrate that, or if you don't celebrate anything, happy Sunday. Um, so. Steven Yen said that he basically got a DM from Jordan Peele saying like, Hey, you want to be in the twilight zone? And I just, I don't, I, there's something so awesome about that. Like, I just, I love this idea that, um, this huge property, the twilight zone is, is a huge property and it's iconic and everything. And I just like the idea that social media is being used to get actors on board with it and everything. It's just such a, it's such a far cry from, you know, getting agents involved and everything, and which I'm sure that obviously there was paperwork and agents involved in meetings and everything. But I just like that the it's like a producer reaching out to an actor directly on Twitter. It's just it's cool. So anyway, Stephen Yun uh, talks to Pendleton and he mentions that he's an extreme tourist, uh, which I thought was really clever because it's he's an E.T. Um And he mentions that he's been everywhere and he travels to the hardest places to get to. And he starts really stroking Pendleton's ego by talking about how extreme tourists always say they wanted to be, they want to be pardoned by Captain Lane Pendleton on Christmas Eve in Iglac, Alaska. And at this point, I really thought that he was a time traveler. I, I, cause I just, on one hand, like the episode's titled A Traveler. And on the other hand, he's talking about how he's so excited to be at in Iglac, Alaska. And he is so excited to be potentially pardoned by Lane Pendleton. I feel like maybe that's, I felt like that was supposed to, well, at that point, I thought since it was, since I thought it was going to be a time travel episode, I thought that he was like coming from the future and that, that outpost that in, in that captain are integral to the future or whatever, but that's completely off base and wasn't the case, obviously. But Stephen Young, again, has so much charisma in this episode. And he talks about how, um, how like being in Iglac, Alaska has been on his bucket list for agro-tourism bucket list. And he talks about how he has a YouTube channel and everything. And he's just, he's buttering up Pendleton so much and he's just stroking his ego and Pendleton's like loving it. Um, and Yuka is still very like mistrusting and, and distrusting of him. So he gets out his phone and there's this really good scene where Yuka grabs his hand as he's pulling out the phone and everything. And then he's like, it's a, it's a phone and he hands her the phone. It's like this really high tech thing. And he mentions that it's Russian designed and the, the Russia references in the episode kind of makes me think that I don't know. And maybe this is a stretch, but maybe part of this episode is a little bit of an allegory for the Trump administration colluding with Russia. Maybe I, Again, I don't know. That could be a total stretch. But anyway, I'll get to that more in depth as I go on. Um, and then as 
Pendleton leaves, and then Yuka asks for his ID for the traveler's ID. And at this point, he also he also mentioned that he legally had his name changed in California to a traveler. And when like I don't know, Stephen Young just has so much charisma. Like you, like you just you just you want to. Like he has this happiness underlying every line that he says when he's buttering everyone up that just seems like, like you put your defense, like it's easy to put your defenses down when, when he's that charming and charismatic. So his ID lists, uh, his name as a traveler. And it's also worth mentioning that his address is the headquarters for Facebook. It's like five hacker way. Um, some city in California. Uh, but that is the headquarters for Facebook. And it plays into this idea that he's this all-knowing person who purports to know all of the town's dirty secrets. And the fact that he's lying throughout the episode to stir up controversy within the group and within the party is a good metaphor for spreading unsubstantiated news and pseudoscience on social media without fact-checking or checking, like, just without doing your due diligence to really check to see if you're sharing stuff that's accurate. And this is something that I didn't, <laughs> to be fair, it did not register with me in my first viewing. I, I didn't really connect those dots in in my first view, viewing, but on Twitter, I had a good conversation with uh, Zach Moore, who's at wacky Zach on Twitter. He's also the co-host of the uncharacteristic podcast, which I haven't checked out yet, but I'm planning to, but he was also a recent guest on Tom Elliott's fantastic twilight zone podcast. Uh, he helped review a uh, nightmare at 30,000 feet. So check that out. And uh, yeah, so he said on Twitter that he said, quote, the more I've chewed on the story, the more I think the point was just showing our tendency to believe things we shouldn't when they benefit our immediate goals. And I agree. Like, and as I go throughout this review, I'll be kind of uh, playing up that point because this episode is totally about confirmation bias and like, like how our brains perceive lies if they're not benefiting us or anything. Like it's, it's an interesting kind of uh, thing that comes up throughout the episode. But anyway, I'll get to that later. Pendleton doesn't question or maybe I'll get to it now. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's kind of exemplified by the fact that Pendleton doesn't question the traveler being at the station at all once the traveler starts butting, buttering him up. Um, later on, he does question everything, but like in that moment when he introduces him to the party, he's just, he mentions that the, the good Lord has given him an honest to goodness stranger to pardon and that he's, and he mentions that he's a great guy. And that part is arguably what kind of, I feel like, substantiates that whole Trump-Russia allegory, because Trump is known to be a jackass, and, uh, like, he's, he's, he, like Pendleton, like, Pendleton is so easily manipulated because he's being, uh, fed, like, ego-stroking platitudes and everything, and I feel like that's an interesting, that can be construed as an interesting allegory or analog to Trump in his whole presidency and everything. So Yuka is the only one who questions how he got there and how the travel, like what his, what the traveler's motives are. And she, she goes and she does some checks, like sees, sees if he has any warrants and he checks, she checks, uh, the hotels and everything, uh, just to see if she can get a read on him. And I, I really like that the show has cast Inuit actors in, in the roles of Inuit characters. But, and I feel bad saying this, but really Marika Silo or Sila, um, she doesn't really do anything too interesting in the role. Like, I feel like she's a little dry and she's a little, like, in the more intense moments, she's not 
it feels almost melodramatic in some of her reads of the lines and everything. And I just, I, it didn't really, uh, connect with me. And I, I kind of wish that it would have, but it just didn't. So the traveler gives a speech once he's pardoned and everything. And he talks about how people in Russia, like he was, he was on the, uh, trans Siberian thing, um, for eight days. And people were asked, always asked him about Pendleton and, and he, uh, and like the great sheriff in in Iglik, Alaska. And that he mentioned that the North Koreans has, have told the Russians that if they ever were going to attack the U S they would have to go around captain, captain Pendleton in the entire, in the entire town of Iglak, Alaska. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And the party just eats it up and it's hilarious. And just dis, not, not necessarily even that disturbing really, but it's just, it's hilarious. And it's just, it's so ridiculous like the amount like the the idea that like north korean like the north korean government and the russians are afraid of this small town and captain lane pendleton it's such a huge ego stroke and everything that it's just it's it's hilarious to me and they eat it up so much and that's kind of a big point of the episode so he's detecting that yuka doesn't um, doesn't trust him or anything. And so she go, he goes up to her and says, um, says like, Oh, Captain Pendleton just pardoned me and you're trying to put me back in jail. Don't you want to open the present I bought, brought for you what you'd like most for Christmas? Um, this is after she says that he's like, she says that he's lied, uh, this entire time. And he says that, uh, she doesn't trust him. And she says, that's the most honest thing you've said anyway. Um, but the point that I want to make is that when she, when he says he, when he references the present that, uh, he brought for her and it's what she'd want most for Christmas. Um, his gift to Yuka is leading her down a path where she will think like the others. She will kind of go into, she, she'll kind of, the, the present is that she will start to, accept his his lies as truth because they benefit her and i'll get to that later in this review but um yeah it's just it's really kind of interesting that they the way that they see that earlier in the episode so yuka doesn't believe or celebrate christmas and i kind of wondered pardon me if i'm reading this episode literally um it kind of makes me wonder if that's why she isn't as susceptible to the traveler's charms um because when you it's during christmas time and if you are someone who celebrates christmas and everything that's supposed to be like the most wonderful time of the year and that's where you do you know good deeds and everything and you kind of feel good about yourself um maybe that's why she doesn't really buy into it because she's not celebrating christmas the way everyone else is but that's kind of a weak uh, uh, a weak analysis, I would say. But anyway, so Yuka brings Jack his plate of food and he doesn't like that there's no pie. Again, that running gag does nothing for me. Um, it makes sense since Jack is drunk throughout the episode and the actor plays drunk really well, but the repetition is what is so annoying to me. Um, throughout the episode. And I just, it's just, it's annoying. Also, here's a good time to address the language in the episode. Now I mentioned last time I'm not, I'm not offended by foul language. I, I, and I, I don't care. Like I didn't grow up with the twilight zone. I don't have kids. I don't feel like I am missing out on the experience of introducing the twilight, this new iteration of the twilight zone to like my family because I'm single and I don't have kids. Um, 
and I don't care about cursing and everything. As I said in my last review, I don't even feel like vulgarity doesn't belong in the Twilight Zone. Like I said in replay, like that use of the F-bomb at the end of it, at the end of the episode, is a really good, powerful statement and powerful moment. Having said that, the overuse of foul language in this episode in particular, in particular, really feels like just lazy writing to me. Um, I, <laughs> I, uh, I tallied up how many F-bombs and shits are said throughout the episode. Um, I don't have that in front of me because I, uh, I don't have the notes in front of me, but, um, I did like a total of between fucks and shits together. There's 20 of them. <laughs> um, and it's just, it seems excessive. It seems excessive and just lazy. Like, here, I'm going to play a clip from this scene where, where Yuka brings the plate of food to Jack. And it's just, uh, here's a clip of that, of that scene. I brought you some turkey and stuff in. Okay, thanks. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Why the fuck am I getting out of here, Yuka? Are you fucking me over? And by the way, do you see any pie on here? Turkey now, pie later. Hey, Jack. What would you say is the thing I'd want most for Christmas? Well, Christmas. Okay, yeah, but what if? So, I don't know. It's just... Like, it's just... It's, it's, it's excessive. It's too much. It's just... It seems lazy, and it doesn't, it doesn't flow well. Um, I don't know. Uh, your mileage may vary, but I like, this is the first episode where I was like, okay, let's, let's cool it with the cursing and everything. Cause it's, it's not needed. So Yuka asks Jack what she thinks she would want, what he thinks she would want for Christmas. Um, if they celebrate it and he says to be one of them. And that's a really biting comment. And like in that moment, we realize that, well, we know it's reinforcing the fact that Jack views his sister as someone who has assimilated into the way of life of the white people who have taken their home away from their people. And he says he doesn't know who she is anymore. That's kind of like the, uh, <laughs> that's like the, the whipped cream on top of the pie that he doesn't get until the end of the episode. Um, and she says she knows who she is and she's proud of who she is. And I don't know, like her read of that line just feels a little melodramatic and it's, it's a little too much. Um, it just, it feels like, it feels like it's undercutting the drama of it and it feels more like a performance. It kind of took me out of the episode just a little bit, like her read of that line. Um, and she like closes the scene by saying, at least I'm doing something. And he says, yeah, their way. Um, that kind of seeds the end of the episode a little bit too. Uh, it kind of, um, yeah, it seeds the end of the episode. Uh, Easter egg, uh, after that scene is the gremlin in the Christmas tree, like a kind of stuffed gremlin is, uh, in the Christmas tree from Nightmare at 20,000 feet. And we also get a look at, um, and I haven't seen this, well, obviously I haven't seen either of the episodes that the, these two things are referencing, but the gremlin in the Christmas tree and what looks like a talky Tina, um, doll from, I think that that episode is living doll. I'm not sure. But anyway. Um, and it's kind of cool cause like one of her eyes are, uh, her eyelids are kind of bouncing up and down. Um, and so it looks like she's winking. I thought that was pretty cool. So at this moment we get the traveler singing karaoke and he's taking, he's kind of taking control of the party and something, uh, I don't know that 
he's taking control of the party. And I kind of feel like maybe there's something to that. Like him, he being this outsider who is, uh, we find out later, is an alien who isn't, who is, uh, his people are invading the planet. Um, I feel like there's something to that. Like, like him taking control of, of this outpost, this, like, like these white people have <laughs> taken control of, of Alaska. Like they have, they have, um, completely subjugated the indigenous people and everything. And there's no, um, like they have brought their own way of life into this setting that has been home for, has been the home for, uh, people that are not like them. And I feel like there's an interesting parallel to draw with, with the traveler singing karaoke and taking complete control of the party and becoming the life of the party from these people who have taken the land away from the Inuits. Um, I don't know. That could be a stretch. I don't know. But anyway, so we get, uh, Yuka telling Pendleton that he's got no priors. There's no warrants or anything. And, um, again, I really like Craig Kinnear in this episode. He, uh, props his feet up like, a dick, um, on the desk. And he's like, I knew there wouldn't be any priors on him. He's a good guy. He's just so like, he's so egotistical. Um, and he, he's like, he's just, he loves the traveler because the traveler is telling him how great he is. And it's so absurd and ridiculous. And great Kinnear plays it so well. Um, and his egotism comes into play when Yuka asks if they can just release Jack. Um, because it's not like, again, Pendleton doesn't really view Yuka and Jack as, you know, people like, like the same as, as him essentially, because, Pendleton turns that around into an opportunity to make it about him getting a twofer. And he's just like, it's just, it's kind of mildly infuriating. Then he's just like, Oh, I've never done that before. I can get a twofer out of this. It's like you had him taken in on a bullshit charge just so you can pardon him. And you get this other guy who's, who's, you know, buttering you up to, to pardon. And so now you're thinking like, Oh, okay, well maybe I can pardon him and everything. Um, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's infuriating just mildly. Um, and Greg Canary again plays it so well. So at this point we get this, um, we cut back to the karaoke and the flickering power grid, um, scene. Like the power grid has been flickering. Like they talk about how it's, uh, due to sharing the power grid with the air force base. Um, and the power goes off and comes back, or I think it comes off and then comes back on, but I don't know. But anyway, the traveler, oh, it comes off and then that's when kind of the, the, uh, tension bubbles to the surface among the party goers. And you kind of get the sense that, uh, the traveler is really kind of orchestrating things in, in such a way. So in the, this is a moment where, um, the traveler helping turn the people against each other is kind of a nice homage to the monsters are due on Maple Street, um, from season one of the Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone. And I'm glad that they didn't go all in on the Maple Street story because it kind of would have felt a little just, I don't know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have felt right. Um, there is a good way that they could have done like a more direct monsters to do on Maple street thing, especially with, uh, including like social media and stuff. But I think the monsters to do on Maple street is such a timeless episode and such a timeless, um, there's so many timeless, uh, messages and meanings and themes in that episode that it doesn't need to be remade. And we saw how it was remade in 2002's twilight zone. And that left quite a bit to be, um, 
uh, left quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, wow. It wasn't good. <laughs> so, uh, so Pendleton announces that he's going to bring up Jack and he's going to pardon him. And the other guy is like, Oh, twofer. It's just, it's so goofy and weird. Um, but the traveler says, I wouldn't pardon Jack Mongoyak. And this is where we get introduced to one of the big themes of this episode, blindly accepting something as truth without research or fact checking. And it's an important topic to tackle in the show and feels like a direct reference to, again, our kind of headline focused social media culture and, um, and how we're just knee jerk reactions to things that like we read a headline, but we don't read the full article. We don't get a good grasp of what is true and not true and what's like what's what's really going on behind it we just we're a headline culture now because social media just kind of brings us down to that level of knee-jerk reactions because we have our hot takes as soon as we read and read a headline because after that you know we have such a short attention span as a society that you know something else is going to we're going to move on to something else um yeah so that was that was cool <laughs> and i like how he just kind of puts everything um like kind of nudges everyone into into different uh uh into this this conflict essentially amongst each other so he says that jack jack mongoyak had stolen thousands of dollars of tools out of um someone's shed um and they're in his car. They're in the trunk of his car back at the bar where, where, uh, Yuka picked him up. And at that moment, Yuka's like, he's never stolen anything in his life. That's not true. Uh, but Pendleton's like, well, how do you know that? And she's like, well, it's not, you don't know that it's true. Like, I think that that was a really good line that just kind of cemented that, uh, that allegory for us being a culture that just, just takes everything at face value. Um, especially when it's something that we consider, um, something that confirms our own biases. Um, and at this moment, there are a couple of cool Easter eggs, and it's something that I really appreciate the show doing, is that they're paying tribute to people who worked on the original series. So the first one is Pendleton, uh, says to one of the troopers, uh, uh, says, I think he, he refers to her as Ida, or Trooper Lupino. But anyway, her name is Ida Lupino, who is, um, who was an actress who appeared in the 16 millimeter shrine, which was the third episode of the original series. And she also went on to direct season five's The Masks. Um, she was the only, um, she was the only actor who went on to direct an episode, I believe. And she was the only woman to direct an episode of the original series. So I thought that was a really cool Easter egg. And the second one is that the mayor of the town, uh, who's at the party is named, uh, has the name Matheson, which is obviously a reference to, uh, Richard Matheson, who wrote several episodes, including, um, the short story. And I believe he adapted the, uh, nightmare at 20,000 feet. So at this point, the party descends into madness with just the slightest push from the traveler. And I really appreciate it for that. Like he says like, Oh, you're, you're a delinquent, um, on your child support payments and jock who he says that too is like, well, that's not true. And then he kind of pokes at this tension between, um, the mayor and this guy who put in bids for, um, some kind of contracting work or whatever. And like, they kind of get at each other's, 
at each other's throats. And so he just has the slightest push um, to make it descend into madness. So Pendleton breaks up the party when people start getting riled up. And I was glad that this happened because, again, it meant that the episode wasn't going to lean into this Maple Street story. And it was just going to leave it only as a slight homage to it. And I appreciate it for that, that they're not going to do a full like remake of Maple Street because they don't need to. Because like I said, that episode is timeless and, and uh, perfect, really. So now that the merriment has ended, Pendleton is finally asking how he got into the cell and uh, how he knew those things. And there's another line again, and I I, I don't mean to be singling out um, Marika Sila's performance or anything because this is more a writing issue. But like she has a line where she's like, she says, "A traveler, is that even your real name?" And that just bugged me so much because no, it's not. He already told you that his name that he had his name legally changed. Like that is not his actual name, and it's just so irritating to me. And it's kind of like. Like the farther I get from uh, the episode, the the comedian, the more I'm annoyed by the by the line in that episode where um, Samir is like, "You don't get into comedy because you want to find life. You get into comedy because you want it all." And it's like, do you really though? Like, is that is that really why people go into comedy? Because that's not my my uh, understanding of of that career field, and it's kind of the similar here is that it's just unnecessary for her to like cl- like ask him like is a traveler even your real name because we've already established that it's not like it's it's clearly not um it just it it bothered me but anyway we get a uh, confirmation from uh lapino on the radio that there are no sto- stolen tools in jack's car and that everyone's having having drinks at the at the bar i guess um at that point, Pendleton asks the traveler who he is and what he is, and he starts to wonder, like, is he a Russian spy or something? And we get another cool Easter egg because the traveler says that he's, uh, he says, uh, I'm Special Agent Douglas Hayes. And I like, again, I like how the show is paying homage to classic Twilight Zone directors and writers and creative people. Um, Douglas Hayes was a director who, uh, who had directed nine episodes of the Twilight Zone between the first season and second season. And I've actually reviewed all of them on the podcast. Um, I won't list them all, but he did episodes like The Invaders, Eye of the Beholder, and The Howling Man, among others. Um, if you listen to my review of The Invaders, that's the his final episode of The Twilight Zone. I actually rank his episodes in that uh, review, so check that out on the feed. So um, Pendleton tells Stephen Yoon, tells the Traveler that he's going to put him back in the jail cell. And the way that Stephen Yoon carries himself in this episode is just so impressive. Like as he's walking through the corridor toward the cells, he has this confident smirk on his face. Um, that's just so chilling and so, uh, unsettling. Cause you don't know at this point, like what his deal is. Um, so we go to the cells. Jack is talking about his stupid pie. Um, it just, it, it bugs the hell out of me. So Pendleton goes to talk to him and, uh, that leaves Yuka and the traveler, alone as she's putting him back into his cell. And he says to her, I know the reasons you don't trust me, but we'll, we'll work well together. Once Pendleton is removed and you replace him, you'll be the lead sled dog. Um, and I thought that that was a really interesting line because that's our first indication that, okay, there's something going on that, um, is out of the control of pretty much everyone in, in play in this episode and that he has, this edge over everyone in the episode. Um, and also the fact that he said like, you'll be the lead sled dog is an interesting, um, kind of 
appeal to her Inuit heritage, I guess. Um, it's, and it's kind of, I don't know if it's meant to be like a slur or, or if it's just appealing to her background and everything, but it was an interesting, um, phrasing there. So he mentions, uh, he, uh, Okay, so he so he mentions that he's Special Agent Douglas Hayes from the Anchorage Field Office, and so Yuka and Pendleton check the uh, he, they call the FBI, and they have this automated directory search, and that seemed a little bit silly to me, but I guess it's plausible since the voice prompted them to contact a field agent. Like it says, like, like I think the phrasing is like, if you have an emergency. Um, please contact one of our field agents and that gives them, I get, presumably that gives them the opportunity to say, oh, hey, Douglas Hayes. And then they, they would do voice recognition. I don't know, but it seemed kind of silly that they had like this automated directory, um, instead of just having like, I don't know, have, have someone call, (laughs) like have someone on the line. Um, I don't know. But anyway, um, I want to point out that I really like the dungeon-like look of the cell block. Um, it's like underground and it has like this just really dark and ominous kind of look to it. And I really like the way that it was, uh, done. So Pendleton and you could go back down into the cells and that's when Pendleton sees the antennae on the traveler. Um, and he panics, he freaks out and Yuka trains her gun on the traveler as does Pendleton. And the way Steven Yun says, get those guns off me is so great. Um, again, he's fantastic in this episode. It, he says that line in such a calm, almost questioning tone, but there's such a slightly threatening edge to it. Um, it's, it's great. I, I love his read of that line. And so, he starts talking to them, uh, or, or Pendleton's like, we saw it, we saw it, Jack saw it, um, Yuka's not saying anything, but she saw it, and, uh, and he says, uh, and he says, um, if, okay, if, if you guys heard, like, there was a noise just now, if there was, that's my cat, she's going crazy. So Pendleton, uh, or the traveler says, no one saw anything because that's insane. And I really like that because it's just, it's, he's, he's appealing to like logic in that he's like, of course I don't have antenna coming out of my head. That's insane. You guys are insane. It was probably just the, just something from the flashlight. And he says it in such a matter of fact way that it's just, it's really, it's really cool. I really like the, uh, the calmness in his voice. And so Pendleton tells him to take off his hat. And I really like the, again, calmly intense way that the traveler tells Pendleton that he's been nice to him at this point and that uh uh i can't remember exactly what he says but he says something to the effect of um you're you're not going to you're not going to want to face the irreparable um effects of um of treating me in this way or something like that i just really love his performance in that scene um i'll play a clip of it here screw it here's a clip of what he says I've been nothing but nice to you. Nothing but nice. So you need to consider if it's worth the irreversible remorse to further address me. With such rude intentions. So yeah, that was really cool. I couldn't remember it, but that was a really cool uh, read of the line. So 
Here's where he accuses Pendleton of working with the Russians. And he says that Alaska State Trooper Post 151 is there to protect the power grid that Iglak shares with the Air Force Base and that there's a camouflage shed that protects the connection point between the town and the Air Force Base. Um, and he explains that if a hostile force were to invade, they would just have to destroy the shed. And he claims that Pendleton sold the location of the shed to the Russians. Again, my cat is going crazy. God. Anyway, um, so that's a lot of information, um, at this point. And it's kind of playing catch up. I do want to point, point out that the Alaska State Trooper Post 151, um, apropos of nothing, but I kind of thought like, oh, they could have made it like Trooper Post 156 as a reference to the original series having 156 episodes. But anyway, um, at this point, as he's talking to Yuka and Pendleton, the traveler's voice becomes distorted and the cuts in the scene become much more frequent and the angles are more tilted. And on one hand, it's one of the most interesting parts of the episode. Up until now, Yuka hasn't bought any of the things the traveler has been saying. She knew the thing about the tools was BS because she knows her brother has never stolen anything. But the second he says something that lines up with her perception of Pendleton, she starts to buy into it. And that's when the episode is all about kind of confirmation bias. And it's a really interesting uh, really interesting exploration of the way that the, the way that we as people are more willing to accept a lie or an accusation if it lines up with our, with, with what we want to be true. And also it's worth mentioning that at this point, uh, he changes his identity again. Um, the traveler says that he's agent Marius Constant from the National Reconnaissance Office. And this is another cool Easter egg. Marius Constant was a composer who was responsible for the iconic Twilight Zone theme music that we all know and love that started in season two of the original series. And according to Wikipedia, I don't think I, I don't think I mentioned this in my, in my, main reviews of the episodes um, of the original Twilight Zone, but it's interesting because uh, they wanted, they needed a new intro and outro music, and they actually ended up using um, a combination of two compositions of Marius Constant, uh, one with like the kind of bongo drums, I guess, sound, and the other with, with the guitar uh, use, and they kind of combined that to create the, the iconic Twilight Zone theme music. Um, so that was pretty interesting to, to learn. So the traveler kind of claims that, that Pendleton has sold out the location of the shed to the Russians and that the Russians are on their way to the shed right now and that the Americans are on their way to stop them. And Pendleton, ever the gullible moron, <laughs> leaves to go to the shed, presumably to b- verify the traveler's story. And uh, I love this because uh, the traveler just undercuts his motivations or, or he gets he undercuts Pendleton's motivations and simultaneously gets into Yuka's head because he says uh, after Pendleton says, Pendleton says I'm going there right now uh, the traveler says to warn the Russians or the Americans and it's just so great because that gets into Yuka's head um, and so this leaves the traveler alone with with Yuka and Jack but he just wants some pie so he's not really in the scene um, so that's when he kind of, he doesn't come clean to Yuka, but he said, he, he says like, Oh, I'm glad that I didn't think he would ever leave. And he says, I'm just trying to prove to everyone here that you've, what you've known all, all these years, that he doesn't care about this area, this land or your people, that he's a liar. 
And at that point, that moment, the traveler opens the door telepathically, um, or with telekinesis. I, I don't know. But anyway, um, with his mind <laughs> and, um, and he goes on and he talks more about, like, he says, like, soon you're going to be the one giving the orders around here. And the traveler is appealing to Yuka's dislike and distrust of Pendleton and her, her identity as an, as an Inuit, as an indigenous person of this, of this area. Like, her ancestors are indigenous to this land. And so the traveler says, like, uh, there's always someone above. There's always, there's always someone that, uh, that we're working for. And he mentions that she and him are similar and that they're worker ants and they get the job done. And the traveler says that once they invade, she'll be running the place for them. And it's this idea of choosing between one controlling entity and another. Um, it's just, it's, uh, it's it's an interesting idea, but I feel like the episode kind of stumbles here because the traveler starts monologuing. He tells Yuka that their intel told them humans would be vulnerable at this place at this time, and he tells her that they needed Pendleton to lead them to the shed. It just felt like maybe that all that was a little unnecessary. Like we get it, we get the point of why what's going on. We know that he is not to be trusted, and that Pendleton going to the shed is going to lead them to the shed, and so. At this point, he asks Yuka if she let Pendleton go because she thought they'd remove Pendleton and put her in charge. At this point, he's just kind of messing with her. And he says the line, like this was a really uh, cool line. He says, you knew what I was. I did nothing but lie to you. Only once I said something that might benefit you, you chose to ignore it. You see, that's, he says either you see that's not right or you see that's not the lie. Um, I couldn't really hear what he said, but he says, you willingly accepted the lie. That's worse. And now it's too late. So at this point, Yuka gets all, and again, Marika, uh, Sila, she just, her read of this line is just kind of doesn't do anything for me. She says like, it's not too late. And she leaves to go after Pendleton at this point. Also, I felt like it was kind of really weird that she just leaves her brother in the cell next to an alien. Um, like he just went on this monologue saying that like, Oh, we're going to invade and we're going to put you in charge and everything. And so she just leaves her brother there. It's just, it felt just, it felt like it was unnecessary. It it felt like it was missing something. Like there was no reason for him to be just sitting there. Like she could have taken the 30 seconds to let him out of the cell. Um, or I don't know. Cause did Pendleton have the keys? I don't know. I, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, clearly, uh, shown that he had the, that she had the keys or Pendleton had the keys. Um, so maybe there's something there. But anyway, at that point, the traveler lets Jack out of his cell. And I felt like that was interesting because the difference between, well, okay, that's not, I don't know. So like, I've thought for a second, like, okay, the difference between, the white man occupying the Inuit's land and the aliens coming in to invade and occupy the land for Jack is that the alien let him out of his cell. Um, like the, like the troopers put him in the cell, but the alien let him out of his cell. But I don't know. Maybe that's not a good read on it because Pendleton did let Jack out of the cell and pardoned him. But Jack said that he, it was too cold and he's just going to stay in his cell, which that in of itself I thought was just kind of, um, a little contrived and it just felt like it wasn't really, uh, it felt like they were just trying so hard to keep Jack in the cell so that he can have that moment with, with the traveler. And they didn't know how to really do that without having a contrived kind of situation emerge. So at this point, Yuka is going after Pendleton. And again, I really like the shots 
of of the exterior of the uh the snowy roads and lit by like the northern lights and everything i really like the shots of yuka and pendleton driving to the shed and just the cold dark locations and the way that the music is just really propelling the story it's just like those together just make it so good (laughs) and the lighting in the shot where like so okay so yuka arrives at the shed and i love the lighting in the shot where she's walking to the shed with the shotgun uh, in her hands, like it's really cinematic and cool the way that the police lights and headlights of her police car flash behind her. Um, and then we get the wide shot with the northern lights in the sky. It's just very cool and very, uh, very cinematic. I love that shot. Um, so she confronts Pendleton and he says, you brought a Remington shotgun to a Russian invasion, <laughs> uh, which I thought was a pretty cool line. And he says, put the gun down, Sergeant. He lied about that too. And at that point I was kind of questioning, like, what is her goal here? Like she places Pendleton under arrest because she believes the lie. And I like that he calls her out on it saying like, um, well, I'll get to that in a second. So, um, she says, you're here so the traveler wasn't lying about what you did. You came to meet your Russian contacts to tip them off. And I feel like that's a stretch, but it's also kind of conveying that she bought into the lie that the traveler told her. Because at that point, like, if you are, you know, thinking logically, like, that's not the case. Like, he just, uh, it's easy to discern that, okay, well, he's, the traveler's lying and, uh, Pendleton is just checking on the status of the shed and everything. Um, but the point is that she believed the lie because it was going to benefit her that Pendleton would be taken out of, of power. And so I just thought that that was a really interesting kind of, uh, climax to their story. Um, and then we cut back to the cell and where Jack says, maybe it'll be better with you guys running things to the alien. That's when we get, uh, a shot of Steven Yoon transforming into his true form, the alien's true form, not Steven Yoon's true form, <laughs> the alien's true form. Um, and I, I think that that kind of really is kind of depressing. Like his Jack's kind of hatred of the people who have subjugated the Inuits and his ancestors and taken over his land leads him to accept these, uh, new overlords. Um, it's kind of really depressing. Uh, Jack is someone who has lived his, his entire life hating the way his ancestors and their way of life have been destroyed by colonization. So much so that he's just accepting of a completely new regime taking over his people's land. And I feel like that's just kind of a downer for, for this character and everything. So then we cut back to Pendleton and Yuka having their conflict. Their final scene in the episode is, uh, Pendleton telling her, let me guess you're getting my job. Is that what he told you? Yeah. See, it's only a lie if we choose to believe it. Um, which that phrasing is kind of, it's a cool line, but it also kind of, it's only a lie if we choose to believe it. Like that makes my head hurt a little bit. (laughs) Um, because otherwise if, if they don't believe the lie, then it's, I mean, it's still a lie. That's the point. Like I, I don't know. I, Anyway, she's, he's telling Yuka that the traveler saying that she would get his job is a lie, but she's choosing to believe it because it's going to benefit her. And that's kind of the whole point of the entire episode. And then, then we get the sound effect of the invasion coming in and the music is swelling. Yuka points the gun up to the sky and we see these, uh, these ships flying in 
uh, lit by the Northern Lights. And the visual effects in that shot kind of harken back to like Spielberg's work with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I got such a Close Encounters vibe off of that and I loved it for it. Um, and then also I got in that moment, I got such a strong Stephen King vibe off of that moment, which isn't surprising. Like the Twilight Zone and Stephen King are somewhat similar in the way they both tell fantastical stories that pit ordinary people in supernatural or fantastical or extraordinary situations. Uh, more specifically, however, this shot of the ship lights coming at the climax of two characters, major conflict feels like something Stephen King would kind of do. It's like this confirmation that these people have been pawns in something much bigger than they could imagine. And maybe that's, I don't know if that's a Stephen King thing or a Twilight Zone thing, or if that's a Twilight Zone thing that influenced Stephen King to make things like that. But, um, it just felt really, it, it kind of, it kind of, uh, filled in a lot of different, different sides of, uh, uh, different circles in my Venn diagram of interest. So I kind of appreciated the episode for that. Um, and again, I love, love, love the music throughout this episode. I really, again, hope that there's a soundtrack release. Um, because the, this show has had some really good music, um, in my opinion. So we've got like a couple of minutes left. Uh, it shows Jack finally getting his pie for, thank God. Um, and Christmas music plays as he's, as he eats pie with the traveler in his true alien form. And so that's when we get this closing narration and I will play that right here. The most dangerous lives come in the form of beautifully wrapped gifts. On this evening, Sergeant Yuka discovered that there's no difference between myth and mistruth. She unwrapped her fateful present far too late on this dark and silent night in the Twilight Zone. Okay, so the closing narration is all right. Uh, Sergeant Yuka discovered that there's no difference between myth and mistru- mistruth. Um, so it's kind of summing up that the episode is about Yuka succumbing to from my read, it's, it's about Yuka succumbing to her, uh, assimilation into this culture that robbed her and her ancestors of theirs. Maybe, maybe that's a stretch. Um, it kind of feels like there's a dichotomy, there, there's a stark contrast between Yuka and Jack. So Yuka has kind of accepted the kind of way, way of the people that have subjugated her or robbed her and her ancestors of their land and everything. Um, while, Jack is accepting of the new regime because he doesn't think it could can be worse. That's my read of it. I don't know. I still think the ending is a little too abrupt and clunky for my taste. And I'm starting to feel that I don't know. I okay, so I'm starting to feel some of the criticisms of the series as it relates to the original series. Um I'm starting to kind of feel similar um in that respect. So it's not as vehemently as some people online have, but the complaints are kind of starting to track for me. Like specifically the criticism that the people in these episodes are not getting their just desserts. No pun intended for the pie and everything. But, uh, there's kind of a more cruel bend to the outcomes in these episodes that doesn't really line up with Serling's style in the original series. Like, for example, Yuka and Pendleton aren't I don't know if I'd necessarily say that they're bad people, but their actions led to an alien invasion. Uh, Justin Sanderson was trying to frantically help, uh, people on, like, like help save people on a plane, but was murdered for it. Samir Wassan was a selfish and arrogant comedian who got his just desserts, but it was by his own hand in a somewhat noble fashion. Um, 
Nina and Dorian survive in replay, but Nina will always be haunted by fear of losing everything to racism. Contrast that to original stories, original series stories, like one that I just recently watched was a most unusual camera where the criminals end up dead because they are criminals and they're using it for an affair. They're using the device for nefarious purposes um, and for their own greed and narcissism. And they end up flying out the window for it. And think about like Nick of time where the couple overcome their issues and specifically Don's superstitious nature. um, And they end up escaping the twilight zone and becoming better people for it. Presumably it's just, it kind of feels like this is a more harsh kind of uh, – this show is – this iteration of The Twilight Zone is much harsher on the on the uh, people in the stories from my count. Again, it's not as harsh as say like Black Mirror is, which is so dour and, and cruel in a much, much, much stronger fashion. So I don't know. That's kind of my thought on it. And uh, I guess that's my review of, of uh, A Traveler. Um, at the end of the day, I – I have warmed up to it for my initial thoughts on it. It's, it's okay. It's, it's not the strongest of the four episodes that we've seen so far. Um, there are some things that I really liked about it and I feel like I'm, it's an episode that I will revisit like in the off season and everything. It's not anything that's ruinous to the show for me or it's not, it's not terrible. I didn't hate it, but it wasn't my, it wasn't the strongest episode for the season for me. Um, I just, I thought it was okay. And again, the language, I just, a lot of it was unnecessary. A lot of the problems for me are from the writing in this episode. Um, but the cinematography, the directing, the, the, uh, the performances between uh, the performances of Greg Kinnear and Stephen Young, uh, specifically are really good. Um, parting thoughts before I close out this episode, I do have a few thoughts here. Um, Kind of an interesting piece of trivia is that, uh, the actor playing Mayor Matheson, uh, Eric, keenly side um he also played a bartender in the 1980s twilight zone episode love is blind which was uh, season three episode 28 of the 1980s uh, twilight zone reboot i thought that was really interesting and also um somewhat funny is that <laughs> somewhat of a funny anecdote is that he was also in Dreamcatcher, a uh, Stephen King adaptation of, uh, or an adaptation of Stephen King's novel Dreamcatcher, um, which I thought was funny because I got such strong, because I've, I've been reading Dreamcatcher for the last week or so, and I, like, this episode evoked a lot of, um, a lot of uh, memories of Dreamcatcher because Dreamcatcher is about aliens invading and main wilderness in the winter and everything. Um, it just, it lined up aesthetically to uh dreamcatcher for me. So I thought that was an interesting kind of connection. Not intentional, just an interesting coincidence. And um another uh actor in this episode, June B. Wild, was one of the state troopers. She also appeared in two episodes of the 2002 Twilight Zone reboot. Uh she was in uh, episode 21 Future Trade as Mrs. Decker, and she was also in uh episode 39, which was the Eye of the Beholder uh remake. She played one of the nurses. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And so to kind of close out this episode, I do want to mention something. I didn't say this at top because at the top because I feel like, you know, whatever. Um <laughs> just kind of gripe a little just to kind of gripe a little bit about CBS All Access. Like I've I've been defending CBS All Access whenever people bring up like, oh, it's just oh, I don't want to sign up for another uh, streaming service. I think it's stupid that Twilight Zone is on, is on CBS All Access. Like, I get the argument, but in my, in my eyes, it's, it's been like, okay, well, I don't really mind that I'm signing up for another streaming service to see the Twilight Zone because A, 
CBS owns the Twilight Zone. They have complete control over over what they're putting out there. So if they outsourced it to, like, if they sold the rights to, like, Netflix or Hulu or whatever, um, that will stif- that would stifle the creativity from my perspective. That would that would put control of the creativity onto someone else. And also having it on streaming, like, one of the big arguments that people have made is that, like, why don't they just put it on TV? And I feel like that's a little archaic <laughs> because I have been so we as a culture have been so spoiled by streaming services having original content that like okay if it was on CBS it would be confined to half hour or hour long they would have to write to act breaks and commercial breaks and everything and it would be less um I feel like there's an idea that it would be um it would be more hard to sell maybe or it would be i don't know the the stakes would be higher for it to be a success like here now on cbs all access like cbs all access is new like it's it's still relatively young it's been around for a couple years and they have star trek discovery and apparently the show strange angel which i'll get to in a second but in the good fight and now they have the twilight zone they're building their um catalog they're building up their um I don't know. It, like they're building, they're building it up. They're building their original series library for all access. So in that case, I'll be shocked if we don't get a second season pickup from CBS for CBS all access for the twilight zone, because shows like star Trek discovery and the twilight zone are established properties with built in fan bases and they are still building up their streaming service. So like having those properties are what is, what is, uh, are what's going to bring people into the streaming service. But anyway, I say all that because, God, CBS All Access is so frustrating to me <laughs> from a UI and from a user interface and connection issue perspective. So, um, for context, I worked all day Thursday um, at my day job, and I came home from work, and I was so excited to watch The Twilight Zone. I did have some assignments due because I'm doing online classes for school for a bachelor's degree. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do my work. I'm going to do my assignments and then I'll reward myself with watching a traveler. So at around nine or 10 o'clock Thursday night, I was like, okay, finally I'm, I'm done with my assignments. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm going to finally watch the twilight zone, waited all day for it. And it was so frustrating because I couldn't connect to it. Like there was um, there was buffering issues. It took forever to get the episode to actually play. And then while I was waiting for it, like while, when it finally got to play, I get this 45 second ad for strange angel, which was mildly infuriating to me because I pay the nine ninety nine, um, nine ninety nine per month for no ads. And it's just like, okay, well, are you going to front load the episode with ads? And then like throughout those 45 seconds, I was like, it was buffering. Like, two or three times. It was, it was infuriating. Um, it, it was just so annoying. And to be honest, I ended up kind of downloading it, not really legally and watching it that way. And it's just like, I, and uh, I went back and I, I watched it on CBS all access, um, later, but it's just like, it was just so annoying. And like, uh, uh someone on Twitter, Jasmine, uh, was having the same issues. And she said that like, I thought that I wasn't the only one that was having buffering issues. Um, it's just, it was so frustrating. So like, I don't know, I, I am on board with them putting it on their streaming service. And I, I don't care that we have so many different streaming services and like the argument that, Oh, we have too many streaming, streaming services and everything. It's, 
it's an it's a non-argument for me because it's like no one's like none of these streaming services are forcing you to subscribe to them year round. Like it's just like I'm going to cancel my CBS All Access um subscription the second that the Twilight Zone season ends. And then when the Twilight Zone comes back next season, I'll re-up and I'll do CBS All Access. It's not that big of a deal for me. Um but I feel like there's this idea that you know you have to have it for like year round and I don't get that. But anyway, that's my minor gripe about CBS All Access. Hopefully they can get the user interface issues and the buffering issues fixed so that I don't have to download it illegally and watch it that way. Um, cause I don't like doing that. Um, especially when streaming services are like show, like me watching the Twilight Zone on CBS All Access is being recorded as data for, to reflect them watching it or reflect the numbers of people that are watching it. And I want to support the show because I love this property. Um, but anyway, my final thought is that (laughs) I, uh, I made the very wise decision to read some IMDb reviews, um, of the show. And that was a terrible idea because it is a cesspool of negativity and, um, people crying foul over the social issues the show is portraying. And I want to, I want to mention here that, um, one of my biggest pet peeves is baseless, unspecific criticism. Um, it makes me angry to see reviews lambasting the show for its social commentary solely because the show's views don't line up with that person that's reviewing it. And, um, one review that really got under my skin, um, like they said, they just want to be entertained and they don't want to be, have, political agendas shoved down their throat. And I'm just like, buddy, you're watching the wrong goddamn show. If you think that you can just be entertained by the freaking twilight zone, like watch the original series. It was social commentary and everything. That's, that's what I've been yelling about for for the last few weeks. Um, for this whole month, it's just been irritating to hear that thing. And I do want to mention that, um, Tom Elliott over at the twilight zone podcast, he has been, he has been doing these, uh, listener submitted, uh, feedback episodes where people have been recording their views on the episodes each week. And he puts out this episode. That's all about, uh, what the listeners think. And I, I, I record a clip and I'm, I'm in the last episode, but, um, I just, (laughs) I just want to say like in for replay, I was listening to that episode, the listener feedback episode. And it, I was so happy (laughs) because so many people were so nice about it and so happy about the episode. And I was just like, it just, I don't know. I, I really, it warmed my heart to hear people actually like the episode as opposed to people and trolls on the internet, just hating it because, uh, because of its politics, um, and a patent misread of, of, of the themes of the episode. So I really appreciate that. And I love the Twilight Zone podcast. And I love that Tom Elliott's doing that and giving a voice to the listeners on the episode. So, uh, each week. So check that out. And yeah, that'll about do it next week. Uh, or, uh, here in a few days on the main feed, if I can get it recorded, I'm going to be reviewing static, which from is from season two of the original series of the Twilight Zone. And uh, I started something new, so I'm going to be also doing a bonus uh, or secondary review of episode two of the first season of uh, Science Fiction Theater. So check that out on the main feed. And next week I will be reviewing The Wonderkind, uh, which is episode five of The Twilight Zone's first season. Really excited for that episode. 
Jacob Tremblay and John Cho are in it and Allison Tolman as well. Uh, just really looking forward to that episode. So that'll do it for this bonus episode of anthology. Thank you guys so much for listening. Let me know what you thought of the episode and, and the, uh, review and everything. And you know, you know where to find me. So thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public Store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewers annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at Facebook.com slash As Good As It Gets Band. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Yeah!